Welcome to Kitty Talks, the podcast that shows you how to follow your passion and purpose. My name is Kitty Waters. I'm a serial entrepreneur and co-founder of ATL Europe Group, also the creator of Kitty Talks. Our mission is to inspire a generation of changemakers to follow their passion and purpose and make a difference on the planet. All our interviewees have been carefully selected and you will hear amazing inspirational stories of people who have listened to their little voice and followed their purpose. They will reveal bite-sized tips and success secrets that can help you to fulfill your passion and purpose on the planet. Be sure to head over to kittytalks.com and sign up for our exclusive club where you can hear behind-the-scenes footage. These interviews will inspire you to take action. Please like and share so others can have the courage to follow their passion and purpose too. Hello and welcome to Kitty Talks. Today I have with me the gorgeous Ian Young. Ian is an addiction specialist and has over 15 or 20 years experience in the area, Ian. Well, I've got over 30 years in the area, but uh, I've got 15 years in the professional capacity of helping other people with their addictions rather than just focusing on my own addiction. (laughs) So I'm excited to talk to Ian today because he has what I consider to be one of the most miraculous stories and personal life journeys Ian travels all over the world, speaking, talking, and obviously helping others with their addictions. Um, Ian, do you want to tell us a little bit more about your kind of current work and where it takes you? Well, I've been pretty fortunate in that I guess I've always been forward thinking and looking for new technologies and new methods of reaching out and serving people. And off the back of that, my company has been fairly successful and has given me opportunities to travel, as you just said, internationally quite a bit and, and reach out and not only work with families and work with individuals, but also the opportunity to speak in front of large audiences. I'm just back from uh, speaking in Palm Springs uh, a couple of weeks ago and then uh, stayed in LA and got to meet up with a load of other specialists in my field. And that's the kind of work that I get to do. I get to travel, hang out with people, meet cool people, and I get to be myself, which I really love. I love the fact that I don't need to be anyone. I'm not in a corporate world. I'm not in a kind of show and tell world. I just rock up and I'm me, which is how I want it we get to design our own life and uh, I feel like I'm succeeding in designing my own life the way I want it which is fabulous and you know what one of the things you just said there designing your own life is exactly what I want to show people through doing these interviews is the fact that once you start to take conscious control of your life you can design what that looks like now it would be fair to say I think that your life hasn't always looked that way that's true. I left home at the age of 16 and I wasn't a well-behaved uh, school kid. I was a very poorly behaved school kid and left home and just set off on this adventure that included a search for meaning, which I found through psychedelic drugs. And that led me into uh, from the hippie into the punk, into the rave culture. But it also sent me it sent eventually through the path of hallucinogenics and into the path of stimulants and opiates. So I spent, I like to think of it as a, if I compare myself to Joseph from the Magic Technicolor Dreamcoat, where, where they had the famine, they had seven years of good wheat and then seven years of bad wheat. That's kind of how I was. I had seven years of very colourful, magical, spiritual and life-rewarding experiences as I travelled all over Europe, essentially. And then I had seven rather tough years where I did the heroin and the cane and the needles and homelessness and uh, crime and the way that I needed to survive and order to support myself kind of took a preference over my life and I watched myself become someone that I really didn't like just in order to cope with my addiction so although I set out in a very fabulous technical direction 
as with a lot of people from my scene and my culture and um, my generation, eventually the drugs turned dark and so did our lives. So, yeah, I got sober in 2001, so just over 15 years ago, and just had to uh, reconnect with that Ian from the beginning that I'd been a starry-eyed kid in my teens, but managed to experience spirituality and magic in a way that was drug and alcohol-free. And that has just been equally rewarding for me. That whole journey since I've been sober has just been profoundly rewarding in the same way that, that my life was when I was earlier. You know, and I don't have any regrets about that time, those 13 years when I was out there, because I, believe me, I had fabulous experiences. Um, I don't regret any of them. But I, you know, I needed to go through that light and then that darkness in order to arrive at the place where I'm at now or have been for the past 15 years. And, and even that's an evolution. I can even say that you know, I got sober at the age of 29 and then throughout my 30s, it was all very, let's discover how to behave as an adult. Let's learn how to live in society. Again, I'd lived as an outlaw. And let's learn how to live amongst people and, and how to be a citizen. And then in the last five years, it's a turn 40. And it's been a whole new journey, learning about not so much professional development and uh, seeing how you know, I can have an, an even bigger reach and touch more people and help more families and make more magic. Fantastic. Da-da. But um, just going back to you know, pre-sobriety, I suppose, yeah. you said that the kind of addictions took over. Was there a, like, a pivotal event or was there a series of events that, what was it that kind of woke you up to, okay, I really need to get help here? One of the hardest things about me finding recovery was admitting to myself that I'd lost, that I'd been broken by my addiction. And it's the same with a lot of people in addiction is that we don't want to admit that we got it wrong. We don't want to admit that we've been beaten. We don't want to admit that we've made some bad choices. But there's a saying, um, there's a lot of freedom through discipline. And that, that once I adopted a new discipline of life, which would mean that I was drug and alcohol free and you know, practicing some life rewarding behaviors like meditation and exercise and eating healthy and all those sorts of things. You know, once I adopted disciplines, I found freedom from my addiction, which had been holding me captive. Yeah, on a daily basis, I had to do what I needed to do just to go and get £10 for the next bag. Or I needed to do what I needed to do just to go and get £10 for the next rock. And I was living life one kind of crime or, or one drug dose at a time. And that's a really small way to be living. Yeah. I mean, I had a colourful life. I lived outside of the UK for many years and, and it was fabulous. But eventually, life just got, well, essentially the police were all on my tail for so long. But uh, I had to come back to London with my tail between my legs and, and without the ability to financially sustain the lifestyle that I'd had previously. And then now I'm living in West London without the means to support my addiction. That's really where that junkie mentality, attitude, behaviour, lifestyle kicks in. And I became someone that I didn't like. I started doing things to people that I cared about that I couldn't tolerate. I manipulated, lied, cheated, stole. Um, you your habit advantage of people that I knew loved me and people that I knew cared about me just in order to get another £10 was pathetic and I could consciously look outside of myself and see myself doing it but I couldn't stop myself doing it because the addiction was driving me it was too far stronger it was more powerful than me and this was over a number of years but I knew that I no longer liked the person that I had become I knew I couldn't tolerate this person for much longer and my kind of moment essentially isn't a single moment but it began it with a catalyst where i was um, injecting cocaine and i used to love injecting cocaine so there's nothing unusual about that i was naked and there's nothing unusual about that if you ask anyone else that injects cocaine we like to take our clothes off not for any kind of perverted reasons but mainly because we sweat so much yeah. my clothes just get drenched so i was injecting cocaine naked in this yellow room uh, it's canary yellow it's horrible 
but uh, there was blood splatters all over the walls from where I'd pull the syringe out and just shake it. And um, banging up cocaine, and I'm very high. For some reason, I've taken a piece of paper and I've written a letter, and I've got this letter somewhere in my garage, I don't know where it is. And I've started this letter with Dear God. And I don't know why I started writing to God. I didn't know who God was, didn't have any belief in God. I I was a card-carrying atheist, and I still am. But for some reason, I wrote a letter to God using the word God. So I wrote a letter to a God that I didn't believe in. And I basically, I wrote a letter that, that was different to how most people would have talked to God. Most people say, please don't God, get me out of here. But what this letter was saying was, God, I'm going to make some changes. And I hope that you're there to help me feel better about myself when I do this. So instead of expecting God to fix me, I was telling God I was going to fix myself. And when I've done that, I hope that God's there for me to help me. In hindsight, and when I look back on it, it's hugely aspirational way of talking to God. Mm. Um, at the time, I didn't have a clue. I was off my head on coke. When I read that letter, the years since I've been sober, it's amazing. And then that was like a late November in the year 2000. And then in December, I was then uh, evicted from that squat and through a whole load of processes, experiences, I went through a detox. I always did my own cold turkey detoxes. And I ended up in a residential rehab. And uh, off the back of that, I was able to make a decision that I was going to change my life permanently. And uh, I remember the doctor who, who was treating me, Dr. Lafina, inspired me to make recovery a mission, give myself a reason to be in recovery. It's not just about not drinking and drugging. Life has to be about something bigger than that. I needed to find a higher purpose for my recovery. So I needed to give a reason for my sobriety. I needed to give my life more of a reason than just not drinking. And over a period of, uh, I guess, months, my reasons became more about seeing how I could help other people, particularly in addiction, since that's what I knew best. But let's see how I can be of use to other people rather than focusing on myself. Let's focus on others. So rather than being selfish, I could be selfless. Rather than being greedy, I could be generous. Rather than being intolerant, I could be kind. Rather than being um, hurtful, I could be loving. And just trying to counterbalance all of the kind of character defects that, that I'd adopted as, as a result of becoming a junkie and seeing where I could essentially flip that around and be a force for good. That became my higher purpose, seeing how I can bring benefit to the lives of other people. And the paradox that, because I am a card-carrying atheist who believes in God, and it's kind of crazy because obviously that, you know, if I sit here and I explain it to you, there is no way I can explain to you that God exists. But my experience is that when I go through the process of, of believing in God, when I go through the process of praying to a power that I don't believe in, when I go through the process of meditating to a power that I don't believe in, when I go through the place of acknowledging that God's there, even though I don't believe in her, miracles happen. I am an atheist, but, but yet I believe in God. And it's kind of crazy, it's a paradox. I believe that God works through magic, the spirit of the universe. As a result of me doing my best to see how I can bring love and light to other people, God kind of rewards me. And I guess you could call this him karma. But as a result of me doing my best to help other people, I feel that God is rewarding me in my own life, in my own situations. Again, without me asking for a new car or a new job or a new wife or a new this or a new that, I don't ask for that. I only ask for power in order to better carry out her will for me. But the result is that she brings magic into my life in many of my affairs. And I'm grateful. I live a life of gratitude and I just do my best one day at a time to see how I can help other people. Fantastic. Kind of a weird life going on. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, you know, I, I totally believe. I believe the more that we push out, the more we are grateful, the more we are focused on what we have, the more 
is available to us actually and um, when we focus on the negative aspects of our life or what we the lack or what we don't have then that expands so it's kind of converse mm. but I would love to hear a bit more about well when you were writing your letter to God you know you said obviously the way you phrased it was very different and interestingly in some of the interviews I've done people have said that it's actually when they took responsibility because a, a lot of people have had pivotal moments where they've stepped up and said, right, I'm ready now to change. I just wondered if you got any type of answer, you know, from God when you wrote that letter or... I didn't, I didn't have a blinding light or a flash or anything, but I wrote that letter. Again, hindsight's a great thing, but let's say that was the end of November. By the end of December, I was going through a life-changing detox and it was only January the 9th that I finished that detox and entered into a rehab and my life changed. Mm. You know, now, it's the same with me. I mean, my God, she's lovely and you can borrow her if you like. She's a bit busy working on stuff in the third world and trying to sort out Donald Trump and all this other stuff that's going on. She's busy doing stuff. But if you need life, you can borrow her. But the point is that she's quite busy. So sometimes she takes a while to get around to doing what you need to do. So in my case, she took about six weeks. And I'm okay with that. I think that's a good enough time lapse. I don't believe that I can pray to God and she's just going to magically make stuff happen for me. But I think I needed to put the footwork in. I need to show her that actually I was going to make this happen. And I hope that she makes me feel all right once I've done it, rather than me demanding that she fix me. So my prayer was inverted insofar as this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to make it all right. I hope that's all right with you rather than please God help me. And literally she heard that and allowed me the gift to get sober and follow that path of uh, seeing where I could bring love and light to others. And for the people out there listening, you know, what advice would you have to someone who's maybe struggling with drugs and alcohol at the moment? Well, the first step is going to be you getting to a point where you're ready to surrender. And it's always the hardest step because essentially you're asking yourself to admit that you've got it wrong. But I need you to know that a lot of us have got it wrong and that's okay. Many of us have got it wrong. I mean, 10% of the population have got addictive disease. 30% of the population are involved in drugs and alcohol in some format that's damaging to our body or to our health. It's okay to get it wrong, but there are people that have got a challenging behaviour. There's nothing wrong with that. It's just life's journey. We're on life's journey, and maybe you've discovered that alcohol has worked for you for a certain period of time, but it's okay to stop and choose a different path now. There's no right time to stop except now. I mean, you can always put it off if you want it. That's cool. You can do whatever you want. But if you want an excuse to stop, I'll give you the excuse. And the excuse is, there's no better time than now. There isn't. But I do believe for people like me, um, which is 10% of the population who have addictive disease, that we can't just stop one drug or stop drinking, and alcohol is a drug, but we have to stop all mood-altering substances and behaviours. So I, I won't have one drink, although I was an alcoholic. I know that just having that one drink will not only kick off my alcoholism, but it will also lead me straight back to cocaine. And of course, I never did crack without smack. So are you ever tempted? No, not really. I mean, sometimes I guess I'd love to get pissed, but normally that's in a place of anger rather than a place of happiness. Um, I've not found a situation where I thought, hey, this this could be really nice with, with, with some cocaine. There are moments where I guess I'd like to drop some E, but mainly because I think ecstasy was always about love anyway. Um, the times where I've thought about drinking have all been from a place of anger, not from a place of joy. And that doesn't sit with me anymore. I mean, like, when I lost my dad to cancer, bosh, why don't I drink my way out of this? That sort of stuff. When this guy screws me over for a load of money, bosh, why don't I get drunk? That'll help me forget 
how I've been treated, that sort of stuff. And that's not healthy. That's not happy. That's not the way I want to be. So it's not something I'm going to follow through with. It's just, yeah, that's about as big of the temptation as I've had. And you mentioned, we were talking just before we started recording, that you were always kind of looking for something bigger, even in your kind of addiction days. Is that like you were kind of looking for something more meaning of life then as well as? Well, I think that here's what happened. I found excitement initially as a, as a young teenager, age 12, 13, through drinking at school or sniffing glue or being naughty or smoking ganja. And the first time I smoked ganja, and what I understood was that the society had told me that, that it was illegal. But yet it felt so good. When I smoked weed, it felt fabulous. And my brain snapped. At that point, couldn't understand why society and the government and everyone was telling us not to do something that intrinsically felt so good. And that just drove me to immediately to a place of distrust in society and the government and a place of seeking alternatives. So as a result of smoking ganja and being told that it was illegal and therefore I was doing something that I wasn't allowed to do, but yet it felt so good, I started on a new path. And that path was, if the government's telling me that, what else is there that I should be, can be experimenting with or enjoying or doing with my life? You know, I'm not a big conspiracy theorist. There's a lot to be said for a counterculture and for living outside of society and discovering things for yourself. My ethos is still one about do unto others as you like done to yourself and do for others as you would do for others what they cannot do for themselves. And at the same way, as long as I'm not causing any harm to anyone else, just let me do what I want to do. You know, yes, I'm an anarchist and a libertarian in my essence. And with that is a great search for enlightenment and for deep meaning and for what is life all about, what is civilization all about, how does it all come? And I think one of the most mind-blowing books I read was by an author called Daniel Quinn. His book is called The Story of B. And actually his famous book is called Ishmael. But The Story of B was actually the sequel to Ishmael. And I read that first and it had an absolute moment with me because it breaks down the whole longevity of mankind. And it asks the question, we talk about mankind over the last sort of three, four thousand years. But what happened over those tens of thousands of years before that? When people started living together and building families and building communities and building whatever, you know, what was this longest gap in life where it's, none of it's recorded, it's only really recorded from when civilizations began. But what if we hadn't adopted this farming culture where you, you had to start paying for your food? Because before that, you just traded for your food. You know, I've got a fish, I've got some cabbage, whatever, and we swap and we live together and it's all happy. But at some point, someone said, no, this is my space of land. I'm going to start building agriculture here and then you're going to have to pay me for the work that I've done. And I believe that that was the point where life as we know it changed, or life as we could have had it changed. I mean, I'm not necessarily explaining myself well, but the moment that we started selling to other people made the inequality balance of life really screwed up. Monkeys don't have an inequality apart from there's one chief who has all the wives. Um, but everyone else is kind of, everyone eats. No one has to go hungry. Do you know what I mean? When colonies of ants live together, they all live together. But mankind seems to have this attitude of, well, I've got something you haven't got, therefore you have to give me something in order for you to survive. And big business has, has corrupted things. As a result. I mean, you asked the question, but that's the sort of stuff I was exploring. Um, through psychedelics. Where did we all go wrong? Mm, absolutely. And then, <laughs> this is a bit of a political rant. Um, 
political but lifestyle. The Story of B by Daniel Quinn. I've not heard of it. Novel of an author by Ishmael, The Adventure of the Mind and Spirit. No. Yeah, I read this one set first before I read Ishmael. And for me, this was the one that blew my mind. But Ishmael is equally you know, famous, if not more famous. So people out there kind of looking for the meaning of life, looking for what their passion and purpose is, what advice would you have for them? What, for people looking for their passion and purpose in life? Yeah, we're living a more fulfilling you know, maybe they're stuck in a bit of a dead-end job. They're not enjoying what they're doing. Don't know quite how to get out of it. See where your experience can benefit others and take that on the road. See what you have in your history that you can bring to serve other people and then go out and do it. And, you know, Tony Robbins says it best. The secret to living is giving. So not selling. The secret to living isn't selling. The secret to living is giving. And, yeah, we all need to, in this day and age, we all need to make a living. A lot of that is done through sales, and I'm not scared of selling to people that, that want some of my services. At the same time, there needs to be a very good balance between the stuff that I do because I love doing it and the stuff that I do commercially. And um, everyone's got to find their own balance. So what's on the agenda for you in the next kind of six months? How are you kind of serving? Well, how I'm serving people, or if, for me, it's always been at grassroots. So a lot of it is I meet the next person that I want to help and I help them discreetly. Uh, I don't really work with solicited calls, but I work with people that God kind of puts in my path. So I, I go out and I find people through my own networks, through my own uh, fellowships. Um, I work at Glastonbury Festival every year and there's always a few people that kind of get given to me that God wants me to work with next. There's always people that kind of cross my path and for some reason or another I'm drawn with them and working with them in some format. There's other kind of charitable stuff and non-profit stuff that I'm involved with and don't really want to spend too much time kind of saying all the good stuff I do for others. But um, I think humility is more important to me than disclosing all the things that I do, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. And is there anything that people can do for you, Ian? So people out there listening, is there anything you, you need at the moment or you're looking for? I'm not searching for anything. If anyone wants some help, I guess, or they know someone that wants some help, I guess if they're on a budget, then I would suggest that they get in touch with me through uh, email and they have a look at my sober coaching home study. And if they're on a budget, then that's the best way I can help them. If someone wants, has the resources and they're looking for a, a bespoke solution for their loved one, then they can contact uh, me through sober services. But I'm not really here trying to pitch for business. I'm, I, I'm just saying, add me on Facebook and make me laugh. Yes. Yeah. Well, we'll have all the details in the show notes. So if people do want to contact you, they'll be, have access to your website and everything. And if there is anyone out there who wants Ian advice, Ian's advice around drug or alcohol addiction, then I'm sure he'll be happy to uh, serve. Sure. And please don't add me on Facebook, actually, because I'm full. You'll have to get to my page. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> oh, well, Ian, thank you. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you today. And um, also another thing that's worth mentioning, we'll put it in the show notes, but Ian has written a book. I have to say, oh my goodness, the most toe-curling book that I remember reading going, oh my God, because it's not about him, but it is about him and some of the stories in that book about what you got up to. You know, obviously, we touched on it earlier, but you literally travelled, didn't you, around Europe putting on illegal raves for 10, 15 years of your life? Uh, for a long period, yeah. And yeah, I had a great time, but I was killing myself. <laughs> And it's my life story, but then if it is the stuff I got up to, and then the last 40% is how I recovered. 
So again, you can buy that book on Amazon or you can have it for free if you go to sameservices.co.uk. You can find it on there and you can download it for free as an ebook, Kindle stuff. And I think it's also available through ian-young.com. If you just search Ian Young. We'll put it on the show notes, Ian, because I think that would be amazing. And people, I would really recommend it. It's one of the best books I've ever read. There's no money to be made from selling books. I give it away. (laughs) That's very true. Thank you, Ian. Lots of love. Very welcome. Speak to you soon. Thank you so much for listening to Kitty Talks. Be sure to head over to our kittytalks.com website. Become a member of our exclusive club and you'll get free interviews and access to our private Facebook group. Exclusive webinars and secret success interviews. See you there.